Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, no, uh, September 23rd, 2021, and this is episode 2961 of the Survival Podcast. Gee, I'm like numerically dyslexic today. Sorry about that, guys. It's been a hell of a week, as you guys know. Um, it is time for an expert council Q&A show, and I'm going to coast this one a little bit. Uh, all I'm doing for my segment today is some commentary on our quote of the day. Uh, that'll be the anchor segment at the end. I've got some great uh, folks lined up for you today. Since we did cancel Miyagi Mornings this week, there won't be a podcast tomorrow, most likely. I am feeling a lot better. Uh, my wife leaves every morning to go with the kids. I might just sit out on the back porch tomorrow uh, while I'm on my own time, so to say, and have a cup of tea. And uh, do kind of an AMA with Jack tomorrow. If I do that, I probably will go ahead and put it out as a podcast tomorrow. Um, I could have all that wrapped up by like 9.30 in the morning or something like that. It'll be early if I do it. It'll be my wife used the house usually around 7. So it'll be like 7 to 8 central time if I do that. I haven't decided if I'm going to do it yet or not, but it's a pretty easy thing to do. And I don't like a day going by without a show. And I won't be here Monday. Um, I won't be here Monday because I'm paying a debt in a great way. So a buddy of mine, who's actually named Buddy, who won a free trip fishing with me, is finally cashed it in from the uh, barter blanket at one of the workshops. And we are going fishing on Lake Tawakini with my good friend, the uh, the uh, leprechaun Omar Cotter of uh, Look at the Irish uh, Fishing Guide Service. So we'll be out busting sandies and stripers uh, Monday. So I'm going to miss Monday. So I really don't like that at all. I don't like the feel of that. Yeah, some some shit went sideways in in my life, but it is what it is, and you still got to keep the uh, you got to keep the things moving. So, uh, just an update, and I'll say a little bit more about this after Doctor Bone's segment today. My ankle is continuing to do better and improve, and it's now at that stage where what you have to do is you have to be careful that you don't re-injure it because you're getting more and more mobile. So I have to like keep a leash on myself. Uh, not last night, but the night before, I kind of tweaked it again putting the chickens and ducks to bed, uh, stepping in and out of the chicken coop up over the ledge. and uh, It's a weird thing with the injury I have, uh, being an Achilles tendon and being able to put as much weight as I want on the heel and all of the pain or potential problems coming from flexing the foot and putting weight on the ball. Normally you'd think if you're stepping up or down from something and you have a wounded foot that you would step the strong foot forward first and you would bring... The weak foot second. And what you have to do with this injury is I'm learning. It's weird. You have to plant the injured foot on the heel where you can bear weight first. Because when you go to go up and you push off with the injured heel behind you, that's where the pain comes. Where that's when the instability comes and all of a sudden you're wobbling and that's not good. I will tell you about a... Uh, a brace that I'm wearing, and I'll put a link in the show notes that I haven't done it yet, but I will, uh, that I really think people, and I'm going to make it a, an item of the day uh, probably someday next week. I think it's one of those things that are like 12 bucks. You should probably have a couple of them in your uh, your uh, first aid kit, uh, your med kit, call it what you want. Um, but like I said, I think maybe we need to someday soon do a show on the stuff that nobody puts in like their first aid kits and all, the stuff that's more like 
again, a messed up knee, a messed up uh, ankle, crutches, canes, stuff like that. Like that's stuff that we just don't think about. And boy, when you need it, you need it. And it really helps you, you know, until you can get like a higher level of care, as Doc Bones would say. It kind of helps you get through. So we'll talk about that. Uh, all things said, for those of them that have been following the week being kind of uh, crazy for me, things are well. Things are well. I'm enjoying my grandkids. I took a really easy day yesterday. I wrapped up the show, and uh, I spent the rest of the day out on the porch listening to music and have my grandkids come and go as they felt like it. And uh, that made it a pretty good day. And uh, my blood pressure that was through the roof is back to you know mostly normal now and not completely normal but close. Like it's only a little high now, and uh, and life is life is is returning to normal. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today other than me and my uh, rambling there? Uh, Doc Ken Berry is going to talk to us about liquid keto diets. Why the hell would you do that? Right? Well, what if you're going to surgery and they said for like two, three days after surgery you need to be on a liquid diet and you didn't want to drink their like sugary shakes that they suggested that you consume? Ken Berry has some thoughts on that. I have some follow up thoughts on that when we do that segment. Doc Bones, who I just mentioned, he's going to talk about our infused products like Tommy Copper, Real Hype, or some of both. And this is when I'll give you uh, a little bit more about the brace that I'm using. And it's not copper. It doesn't have anything to do with copper. And I, I very much agree with what Doc says in this uh, this, this response. Amy Dingman is going to talk about how to know when kids are ready to participate in slaughtering or butchering livestock. And I, I break that into an or, and I'll have a little bit of follow-up on that one, too. And a story about yesterday and a squirrel that didn't get shot because I didn't think somebody was ready to see it happen yet. Uh, Patrick Rohrman will talk about something I didn't even know was a thing, and that's truing up the edges of an oil stone that's gone, that no longer is true on the top. So you don't have a nice flat oil stone. Like a, this guy has his grandfather's oil stone, and the edges are like higher than the center now. Like I said, I, I never even heard of something like that, but Patrick's going to talk about how to correct that because that's an heirloom you don't want to go away if it doesn't have to. Amy Ding, I'm sorry, Derek Bonpietro is going to talk about additives for your vehicle, like ones that supposedly make the seals better, make it run better, make it like a new car, whatever, keep it new forever. Like, are any of those worth using? Or are they all bullshit? Kind of like Doc Bones is talking to us about copper. Is it real? Is it hype? Some of both. What is it? Is there anything good? If so, what is it? And then building doors and latches with all natural materials from Paul Wheaton. Now, this might be one like you're like, what? You build doors with wood, so what? What about like... The latch for the door. What if you're trying to build stuff, like you buy a piece of land and you have a lot of wood and timber and stuff on the land, natural materials, you're using stone, mortar for, that you can make on your own land, uh, things like that. And you're trying to build doors. I mean, think about it. And they don't get into hinges, but I, I, that would be a thing too. I guess you could become a blacksmith or whatever, but how about building a door that actually closes, that latches, that locks? without running down at a hardware store. So that's kind of what they're going to talk to us about. And then I'm going to talk to us about a quote, and this is a perfect quote for me to talk about on a week I want to coast a little bit, from Benjamin Franklin. He said, you may delay, but time will not, and that's what I'll cover. With that, let's go ahead and jump on into this Doc Ken Berry on liquefied keto diets. And, you know, God bless this one that this would be a temporary situation. Hey, TSP crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Jeff. Uh, Jeff's question is, does Dr. Berry have any ideas for a keto liquid diet after surgery? I will be having prostate cancer surgery, and the suggestion is for a liquid diet for a few days after the surgery. The liquid diet 
that they recommend as high in carbs, jello, soft drinks, etc., are there keto alternatives? Yes, Jeff, there absolutely are. Uh, but let's talk a little bit of, about why they want you on a liquid diet. The reason they want you on that for a few days after your prostate surgery is they don't want you to be having ginormous bowel movements where the feces is going to be pushing against the area that was just operated on. They want you to have either no bowel movements or very, very liquidy or very small bowel movements. When you're eating lots of fiber and lots of processed crap, you're going to be having big bowel movements, and that's going to hurt that area and maybe even damage it. When you're eating a nutrient-dense diet like keto or carnivore, you're not going to poop nearly as much. Okay, does that make sense? And so many carnivores... They poop once every other day, and it's a very small amount. There's not a lot of straining or cramping or problems and not a lot of gas. But if you just want a a keto version of, of, of a liquid diet, the thing that I would do if I were you is I would make a huge vat, a cauldron of bone broth, and just simmer the bones for days and days, and then sip on that. The magical nutrients in that bone broth is going to help you heal from your your surgery very very quickly, and it's not you're going to absorb all that nutrition, and therefore you're not going to have a lot of residue left over that will become poop, which is going to is the reason they're not wanting you to eat a lot of roughage. Uh, you can take any keto recipe, uh, any keto soup, and just put it in the blender and blend it up into a liquid and sip on that. The beauty of keto and carnivore is that they're so nutrient-dense, there's not a lot of waste left over to make feces, which is then going to clog up your your colon and cause a large bowel movement and damage that area. Hope this helps, and best of luck, Jeff, on your surgery. I hope it goes well. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. I'm I'm having a duh moment right now myself, not needing to have a liquid keto diet, but kind of rededicating myself to keto. And uh, basically, I've made a commitment for the next, uh, well, until the workshop, to be 100% carnivore. Uh, maybe three or four weeks in, I'll start having a, a salad with dinner. And when I say a salad, I mean leafy greens uh, a couple times a week. But otherwise, to be 100% carnivore, two meals a day. Um, as part of my recovery from this injury, and partly because I've let myself eat some things I shouldn't put some of my weight back on, not a lot, but a little bit, and I, I don't like that. Uh, I think we need to kind of reset ourselves once in a while. But with this injury, I'm thinking, boy, dummy, you should be doing some bone broth. You really should. And I, I want to say one thing about bone broth. There's two schools of thought. And one is the only way you can make bone broth is what Ken said, long-term, in a kettle, you know, a full day or more, slowly. And the other is, well, you can do that or you can put it in a pressure cooker. And some people really don't like the pressure cooker idea. I believe in better living through science and better living through chemistry and better living through uh, any form of science, right? So we live better because we know how to take this black sludgy, sludgy stuff out of the ground, refine it into something we call gasoline or diesel, put in a vehicle and do the work of a thousand men with one small vehicle and a guy pushing a pedal down. That's better living through science. That would also, you would call that better living through organic chemistry, right? So when I can take water that has a finite limit to how hot I can make it, 212 degrees, and I can pressurize it and jack that temperature up over 240 degrees, And I can take bones, and I can put them in a pressure cooker for, let's say, an hour and a half. 
And when those bones come out, they're soft. And I know I've extracted from those bones like I've cooked it for 24 hours. I'm okay with that. So I'll just say that I believe bone broth can be made that way. And I'll also say like with inflammation, like I'm dealing with right now, like when I make a batch of bone broth for me for this through this week, um, I am going to put a ton of ginger, lemongrass, and, and uh, turmeric and other anti-inflammatories in it like that. And uh, bone broth, I think, is one of one of man's accidental accidental miracles. Um, we originally, as proto humans, I guess, or you know, early humans, call it what we want. We actually made broths in things like the stomachs of animals by tying them off and putting the bones in them, filling it with water. I mean, we didn't always have pots and kettles and things like that. And, and, and dumping hot rocks in, in there and, and letting it basically pressure steam uh, over time and, and realize that there was incredible nutrition in that. And the fact that long before anybody could articulate why, we knew. We knew that there was value in, you know, not just the little bits of meat and cartilage left on that bone that could then be eaten uh, off it very, very tender, but we knew that there was value in nutrition and the moisture. And it has to do with collagen, but it has to do, with, I, I believe, with a lot of other things, minerals and things like that. So um, I, I highly endorse bone stock. And I, I'm all about slow cooking bone stock over time, but I'm not adverse to using a pressure cooker. And I say, you know, like, well, which one should you do? Well, what do you got going on? You know, Ben Falk has a beautiful wood stove. It's one of gorgeous old antique wood stove. It keeps running all, all winter long. So when they, like, slaughter a goose or something, they throw all the bones in there. And he does the old school method. Well, why wouldn't you to heat there? But if if I have a choice between using a very small amount of electricity with the efficiency of an electric pressure cooker for an hour to 90 minutes versus running propane gas for two days, guess which one I'm going to do? So it's up to you guys, but I really endorse bone broth. Maybe we should do a show on bone broth someday as well. Uh, with that, let's take another one. This one on uh, copper and things like supporting uh, ankle bands and, and braces and stuff like that. Hi, Joe Walton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the Survival Medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Jonathan, who writes, Does the use of copper help in recovery from an injury? I injured my calf playing softball while running. I felt a pop in my calf. About two days later, and the pain is a lot better, but I still can't walk without taking normal steps without pain. Calf is still swollen. I was wondering if the copper-infused compression sleeves work better than standard compression sleeves. I have seen claims that say, yes, copper helps with the recovery from injury, and others say it is bull. I'm using the Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone. Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan, I strongly believe in natural remedies, and copper-infused compression garments are indeed the rage. You can find them in anything from socks, knee braces, elbow sleeves, leggings, and shirts, impregnated with this kind of stuff all over online. These products are marketed as a pain reliever that improves sports endurance, and one company, Tommy Copper, has made hundreds of millions from sales in the last few years. Other companies include CopperFit, Miracle Copper, and Copperware. A 2012 Tommy Copper catalog claimed that copper has been used for thousands of years to aid in reducing inflammation, growing and sustaining connective tissues, and aiding in blood flow and oxygen transport. The ad also says 
that it, quote, provides immediate relief from inflammation and harnesses the other well-known health benefits of copper. In one ad, talk show Montel Williams says, quote, Tommy Copper is truly pain relief without a pill. Given the millions of people with problems relating to pain, it's tempting to believe just wearing a copper-infused piece of clothing will magically take away the discomfort. The problem is that there's little or no reliable scientific evidence that the copper-compression combo works any better than plain compression garments by themselves, which is why Tommy Copper paid $1.35 million to settle Federal Trade Commission charges that they deceptively advertised their copper-infused garments. The FTC charged the company with falsely claiming that its product would treat or relieve chronic or severe pain, including pain and inflammation caused by diseases such as multiple sclerosis, arthritis, and fibromyalgia, and also provide pain relief comparable or superior to the effects of drugs or surgery. It's tempting to believe that wearing a particular type of clothing is a good idea, and maybe it is, but do your research and talk to healthcare professionals before you invest. Compression, though, that's a different story. Compression is indeed the third step in the strategy to treat strains and sprains called RICE, R-I-C-E, rest, ice, compression, third step, and elevation. Compression limits swelling and stabilizes the injured area. So compression stockings have some benefits in general for injuries and pain. That is well established. This might make you believe I don't think copper is important. Copper definitely has health benefits. Small amounts of copper are essential. It helps maintain a healthy metabolism, promotes strong and healthy bones, and ensures your nervous system works properly. It also helps our heart and arteries, and some research suggests that a lack of copper can contribute to the development of coronary artery disease. I'm talking about ingesting 0.9 milligrams of copper a day, though, through foods like cashews, sunflower seeds, chickpeas, liver, oysters, meat, and fish. Wearing copper in clothing, like stockings or bracelets, well, not so much. One thing I'll say about Tommy Copper is they have a 60-day return and refund policy, no questions asked. This is a testimony to the benefits of compression rather than to any effect from copper itself, which you can't find too much information about on Tommy Copper's website. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you believe in our mission, do us a favor and check out our entire line of quality medical kits, someone of a kind, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I, I agree with Bones here. Uh, I, I don't know for a fact that there might not be some legitimacy to the fact that, you know, copper nanoparticles or something like that might not contribute to, um, restoring, uh, you know, parts of the body with strains or sprains or injuries to the muscle. I, I don't know that. I, I have not yet seen any compelling evidence, nor have I experienced any compelling evidence. And I also know that the placebo effect is real uh, and that compression, as Bones mentioned, works. So you go out and you have this strain or this sprain, you get this compression technology. And to be fair to Tommy Copper... Their compression stuff is good, right? If you took the copper away out of it, I would just say they're a great compression product, right? And I've talked to people who I know and respect that say they use Tommy Copper products and they like them and that they feel that they work. And I'm not saying they don't work. I'm saying the copper doesn't probably do anything. And to me, it's very difficult to believe 
that copper impregnated in a sleeve wrapped around your body is going to do anything as far as even getting into or influencing your body. Is it possible? Sure. I just think there's a lot of things a hell of a lot more probable. That, that's kind of how I feel about it. Now, I will say compression is really valuable. I won't say much about this thing, but I did put a link in the show notes while I've been producing the show today for you of the uh, the brace that, that I got for my ankle. And if you have an ankle problem, and the reason it made me think of this is when that guy said it popped in his calf, it may very well be the tendon that made the popping sound because that's exactly what happened to me. Now, mine was low enough that it was obviously um, the tendon. I mean, it's completely 100% clearly the Achilles tendon. Doc said the same thing when he felt it. It feels kind of softer than it should. It's recessed some, et cetera. Um, but I can walk almost normal right now. I got to be careful of little things. Like I said, you know, making sure you're leaning with the left foot when you're going up or down on even surfaces. Uneven surfaces are my enemy. I looked at a piece of, of a garden hose laying across the, uh, the walkway and I was like, it's my nemesis, you know, like Sideshow Bob in the rake, if you're familiar with that. Uh, yeah, I'm taking be taken out by a garden hose laying on the ground. Um, but mostly I can just walk. Not high speed, not real fast, not without thinking, but I can mostly just walk around with that brace on. If I take the brace off, I am not comfortable walking. It's, it's very unnerving still. It gives a lot of stability. And it's just a wrap. And it's thin enough that it fits inside a shoe. And like I said, I think it would make sense. They come in like a Ziploc sealed bag. So like throwing that in your med supply kit, I think it would really make sense. I'll, I'll give you more information on it next week. But uh, it is the difference between being comfortable getting up from my desk, walking to the bathroom, and taking a leak and coming back without crutches. That's how big of a difference it is. And I like the way that it's built. Again, I'll say more about it next week. But definitely think about keeping things like this in your med kit. And people would say, you know, wrap it up with an ace bandage. I'm, there's things that ace bandages do okay. And ace bandages, it will go anywhere and do anything an ace bandage can do, right? It is, uh, it is not a specialty built piece of equipment. This is 12 bucks and it is. And so I recommend stuff like this. Anyway, um, let's go ahead and talk to Amy Dingman about livestock and kids. Hello, everybody. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast, and I'm here with a question from Tom about parenting on the homestead and uh, harvesting livestock. So here we go. His question was, when and how would you suggest introducing children to livestock harvest on a homestead? For any homestead raising animals, slaughter is necessary, but it can stir up complex emotions even in adults. Part of the benefits of raising children on a homestead is teaching them how to grow their own food and letting them understand the entire process. For example, my toddlers are always welcome in the garden with me, and we happily pick produce together, but I haven't let them watch me harvest a duck. What are some good ways to introduce children to the concept, and how would you determine if a child is mature enough to understand? Thanks, Tom in New England. Thanks for your question, Tom. Uh, as far as our family, we didn't always live here at the farm. We weren't always homesteaders. So our kids didn't have the hands-on experience of, you know, the animals we raise are for meat until they were about six to eight years old. And at that point, they were immediately involved in the processing day. But we've always been a hunting family. So our kids always knew that, you know, the dead ducks and geese and grouse and deer that we were bringing home were to put in the freezer to feed us through the year. And I know it's a little bit different to say, 
oh, that chicken that was wandering around or that pig that we've been feeding is now being slaughtered and now it's on your plate, but it's not as though my kids were unaware that the muscle of an animal is how you get you know, that turkey dinner or that hamburger. I would say the most important thing is that kids understand the animals you're raising are for food and they aren't pets. I would be careful about naming them. I would be careful about spending a lot of cutesy bonding time with them, which can be tough because you want to make it clear that you treat your farm animals well and with respect, but you have to figure out where that line is between this is an animal we treat with respect and this is an animal that, you know, we love on like it's the family pet. Those are two different things, right? So as far as an answer, I don't think there is a magical answer for this because this can be tricky as every kid is different. You know, when when you introduce them to the concept of processing animals, I think some kids are going to essentially shrug their shoulders and say, okay, and other kids are going to run off crying. Depending on your kids and the ages, You can ask them if they want to be involved, and if they do, understand they might change their mind in the middle. I do think something that's important is your approach to this whole thing, because I've seen parents who who draw the whole process out and make it this big, dramatic thing, and I think for a lot of kids, that actually makes it harder. For us, when we, you know, got to the point of processing our own animals, it was it was basically, this is what we're going to do, do you want help? That's that's literally how we approached it. You mentioned you have uh, toddlers and you said you hadn't processed a duck in front of them before. I would say, um, you know, like at our house, would I have a toddler around on butcher day? I wouldn't. But that's because of our setup and the speed that we're trying to work at. I wouldn't want a toddler underfoot when I was butchering. So it would be more about I, I don't want you underfoot rather than do I want to expose you to this process. But I don't know your family. I don't know your kids. I don't know your setup. I don't know if you have extra eyes to watch the toddler while you're involved in the harvesting. So I, that's just my two cents there. But something that I think is is important to point out here is that you know, in choosing to be homesteaders and in choosing to to go back essentially to that life where you're raising your own meat, processing animals is something your kids are going to see and their reaction to it is something you're going to have to deal with as a parent. And I don't know if this is something that parents even worried about a hundred years ago, 150 years ago. I think, you know, I don't know for sure. Obviously I wasn't alive back then, but I think it was probably more of a, if if you want meat junior, <laughs> this is where it comes from. And I, I don't know that it was even anything they thought about, like how do I introduce the kids to this? I think this is one of those things that we probably worry about as parents because we've softened a little bit as a society and or maybe not even that, but like homesteading isn't the normal anymore. And so now we have to be like, wait a second, you know, how do, how do we um, introduce our kids to this where back in the day, that probably wasn't even anything that they thought about. So I think it all depends on the kids. I think it depends on your family. I think you have to use your best judgment as a parent and know that some kids are going to be totally okay with it and some kids aren't. And that that's just kind of how it goes. I would be less dramatic about it when you are introducing a kid to it. Like this, this is what we do. Our family raises meat? Do you want to be involved? And and there you go. That's how we did it. It worked for us. So every family is different. You'll have to make that decision for you. I hope this answer was helpful. If you have any more questions, make sure to send them to Jack. I look forward to your next questions about homeschooling, parenting, family stuff, all that good stuff. So in addition to everything she said, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm big on the whole when they're ready and they say they're ready, that's when you trust them to know that they're ready. 
My other thing, though, is to make sure that they know what they're saying yes to. So here's what happened yesterday. Like I said, I was sitting out on the porch listening to music, uh, doing some piddly little work stuff and things like that, um, enjoying myself. Grandkids are coming and going. And Charlie treated a squirrel. And I was talking to Braylon, who I would have been comfortable doing this with if, he, if it had only been him. I said, I should go get a gun and pop him. And he said, really? I said, yeah. I said, then we could skin him and put him on the grill. And uh, I said, because I'm not letting Charlie get him because Charlie eat him. I'm not, I'm not, he's not, I'll share it with him, but I'm not going to, uh, not going to let him just swallow because he'll swallow one when he, when he kills it like a snake swallows a rat. It's, it's pretty amazing a dog can do that. Um, and he said, we'll do it. And I said, I, I don't think that Tegan's ready for that yet. And she said, yeah, I am. And you think, well, you just said, you know, that when they're ready, they're ready. They have to know what they're ready. They're saying they're ready for. So I think you have to be careful with that. And what it made me think of instantly, when I was a kid, my sister, when she was about Tegan's age, became obsessed with this thing at grocery stores, like a vending machine. And it was this stupid thing with a chicken in it, and it had a bunch of plastic eggs. And you put 50 cents in it, and a chicken went, bah, 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 spun around, and an egg come out. And the egg had some stupid little prize, a plastic ring, some crap in it. She became obsessed with this. And... Um, She would say, I want to go to the chicken. I want to go to the chicken. Like, out of nowhere. There's one thing at the store, and it was a pain in the ass. That's my, my parents' problem. But, you know, I was like four years older than her, and she's running around the house crying. She wants to go see the chicken. Well, one day, my, my, we were at my grandmother's, and she wants to go to the chicken. And my grandmother's cooking chicken in the oven. I said, let me show you the chicken. I'll show you the chicken. I pointed in the oven. I said, there's the chicken. Right, being a bratty little brother. But I, I, I would have done it if I knew it was going to happen. The light bulb clicked. Bam. Oh. The chicken is a chicken, and chicken is what we eat. She didn't eat a piece of chicken for six months. And so I think you got to be careful. I'm not saying it will happen, but you got to be careful that when they say they're ready, they know what they're ready for. And I also think breaking, butchering, and slaughtering into two different things is a good idea. And then there's, there's slaughter, and then there's like the initial processing And then there's butchering. So what I mean by that is there's a way that we make the animal no longer alive. So in this case with a squirrel, bang, the squirrel falls out of a tree, squirrel's dead. I don't know how she would have took that. My concern was when you start pulling, you know, skin off flesh and pulling gut and the blood portion. Um, I am totally okay with like taking a chicken out of the freezer or one if I had slaughtered a duck or a chicken and doing the butchering part. This is how we take the leg quarter off. This is how we take the backbone out and all that. Because that's more like food preparation. So maybe there's a way to phase into it. Those are just my thoughts, and I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. I just think that when a kid says, yeah, I want to do this, I think it's important that they know what they're saying they want to do. And I, I, I personally didn't feel she felt that way yesterday. And I didn't want her to see Pop as this big bloody you know, butcher killer type thing until she's clear what that means. And I, I do think she gets that we take animals and we eat them, and I think that's good. And I think the reason that Braylon's pretty comfortable with it at this point, at 10, is that when he was younger than her, he used to point at the turkeys in the yard and say, we're going to eat you. And I think that's okay, but there is that transitional period, and I think you have to be careful how and when you introduce that. Next up, are any of the additive things, like for improving seals or engine life or anything like that, is any of it worth doing, Derek Pietro? What is up, TSB listeners? It's Thursday. Let's do some car talk. I got a question from Nick on additives for your vehicle, so let's get into it. 
Question, are additives useful for preserving and or improving engine performance? Details, I do all my own automotive maintenance and repairs, and I would like to know if additives that do things like rejuvenate seals and seal leaks are effective. I've been warned away from radiator sealing products before, having been told that they can plug up the water jackets in the engine. I've also seen oil additives that claim to seal valve leaks and head gaskets. Can these be effective or potentially harmful? Thanks for all you share for the community. Nick. All right, Nick. Uh, no, not at all. No, no, no. Now, let's, let's elaborate on that a little bit. Manufacturers do have additives that go into your fluids that are recommended and possibly even required. For example, if you have a rear axle with a limited slip differential, a clutch pack type, typically that's going to require a limited slip additive, which is basically a lubricity modifier. Yeah, who's the smart one now? And that just basically keeps it from chattering. Some manufacturers have an additive for the coolant. I believe it was like one of the international diesels in the Ford. They had issues with the, the antifreeze actually creating wear on the inside of the engine block. And so they put this modifier into it, which basically kept like little microscopic air bubbles from forming inside of the engine block due to the vibrations. Sometimes there's a service bulletin to use a newer type of fluid. Uh, some of the manual transmissions back in the 80s for like the Fords and GMs, they went from gear oil to automatic transmission fluid, stuff like that. You know, those are things that I recommend. If the manufacturer is requiring it or recommending it, and there's some type of bulletin or well-known article that says this is the reason why we do this, I 100% agree. Make sure we get the correct type of oil or fluid in there and make sure we get the additive that's required. So that's basically like maintaining OEM level quality oil and fluid as a proper protection device. So now, now that we've gone past that point, we've got an engine that might have like a bad head gasket or it's got an antifreeze leak that's physically dripping onto the ground or we got an oil leak in the engine. We've got a seal that's possibly not quite doing its job and we're getting a drip somewhere. Do I believe in additives to solve these problems? Absolutely not. Now, okay, if you have a clunker, it's on its last leg and you just gotta get it through maybe a week or two and it's puffing white smoke because the head gasket's blown and your long-term plan is to basically next week send that guy to the scrapyard, have at it. Send all the additive you want into the coolant and see what happens. But if your goal is long-term ownership, you don't wanna have that. You don't wanna put that stuff in there. You wanna repair it correctly. If there's a seal that's leaking, have the seal replaced. If the head gaskets are leaking, repair them, check the cylinder heads, do the job proper, and you're going to get long life serviceability out of it. When you take the shortcut and the cheap route, you're going to create more problems. So you're putting stuff in the antifreeze, correct. That's going to plug the radiator possibly. That's going to plug the heater core. So maybe the engine runs great, but now you don't have any heat. You know, if it's a physical leak, it's a physical fix. No shortcuts. Now, oil additives, there can be potentially some performance gain, meaning like better fuel economy, better power, or reduced engine wear, and there's a lot of bad stuff out on the internet. Basically, the additives that you're putting in, you could potentially damage, say, like the catalytic converter because we're putting high quantities of something into the oil that might reduce friction, which is great for the engine, but it's not good for the emission systems because there is a small amount of crankcase vapor that runs through the engine from the emission systems and finds its way through the exhaust, and you can damage O2 sensors, catalytic converters. So if that's what you're going with, I think you're just better off getting the proper oil or an upgraded oil. 
A lot of new engines require some funky viscosities like OW20. You know, the tolerances are very, very tight and they require a very thin oil in order to work correctly. We do not want to wander off of that specification. We want to use exactly what the manufacturer recommends. Now, an older vehicle, we're talking, you know, 10, 20 years older, you might potentially have some benefit from using like a synthetic blend. You know, oil technology advances every year and older vehicles can certainly benefit from it. Now, going to like full synthetic and we just had an engine running 100,000 miles on regular oil, you can create some problems. You could potentially create a leak or burn oil because the engine was kind of broken in using that older oil. So you got to be careful with that stuff. But on newer vehicles, I'd stay away from the performance additives for the oils themselves. Just use what the manufacturer recommends, buy a quality brand, and make sure that it's the right specification. So if you flip the back of the, the can over, you're going to see a, a round, kind of like an emblem. And it's going to be like class S something. It's always two digits. And for gasoline engines, it's uh, class S something because it's spark ignited. Diesels are class C for compression ignited. And the second digit as it goes up is a newer oil. So we always want to make sure we're using oil that meets or exceeds what the vehicle needs. And so if you're putting in an older oil than what the vehicle calls for, you could have reduced performance and excessive wear and things like that. So that's really the recommendation is just stick to what the car calls for and use good quality stuff. Two things I would probably recommend that are maybe a little bit higher level than what your normal maintenance would be is potentially with an automatic transmission doing a flush. So this requires a special machine basically hooking into the cooling circuit and the transmission is pumping its old oil into a recovery machine and then that recovery machine is pumping new oil into the other cooler line back into the transmission. So you're, you're basically swapping out the blood. There's two things I don't like with that. One, a lot of the companies that offer those, your dealerships, whatever, they use a really heavy detergent and cleaning additive first, which on an older transmission, especially if you haven't serviced it or flushed it before, is a recipe for chaos. The other thing is that they're typically putting a universal oil, uh, you know, a synthetic oil fluid back into the transmission. And I disagree with that. I personally think we should be using a manufacturer-specified automatic transmission. So I really like flushes because it's getting all the oil out. We're certain that we have 100% brand-new oil in the transmission. And we're also getting the torque converter flushed if we have a torque converter-style automatic transmission, which there's no way to physically do as with a drain and fill. So the fluid just stays in there. So it's a really thorough service, but I would probably stay away from the detergent additive that they put in. And then typically when they finish it off and they check the fluid level and all that, they put in a another additive, which is like some kind of performance or increase your fuel economy, BS, stuff like that. Like I would just stay away from that, flush it with the OEM fluid, call it good. So that's one type of thing you can do as far as like, it's not an additive, but it's kind of above and beyond a normal drain and fill free transmission. The other thing I really like are fuel additives. So... I've got an old diesel, mechanically injected diesel engine in my, in my Cuck V pickup truck. And fuel, diesel fuel these days is very dry, meaning that it doesn't have very good lubricating properties for the fuel system. So I always use a fuel additive. Not only does it protect the cloud point, so basically when it gets really cold out, diesel fuel tends to gel, especially when it's getting pushed through that filter right before it goes to the engine. And that can stop you cold and dead in your tracks. So the diesel additive, oh, 
it lowers the cloud point, so we know that the, that the diesel fuel is going to flow in the coldest of temperatures, and it's going to add lubricity to the fuel system components. Now, if you've got a modern diesel with a catalytic converter, you definitely got to check the additive that you're putting in and the manufacturer recommendations because that can have a detrimental impact on the emissions components. Now, for a gasoline vehicle, a lot of new engines are what's called direct-injected, so the fuel is actually pushed right into the cylinder instead of the intake manifold. Now, five, ten years ago, and, and, and older, multi-port fuel injection, spraying fuel into the intake, it actually pushes fuel right on the intake valve, and believe it or not, that cleans that valve off, which is good for it. Now, we're bypassing that, we're spraying it into the cylinder, the valve can tend to carbon up a lot, and our EcoBoost F-150 Ford is definitely hard up and says that there's no service for this. The fix is basically once the valve gets carboned up and the engine performance degrades, hey, guess what? You can just put new cylinder heads on. Awesome. Uh, I haven't I haven't crossed this bridge yet, but I think some type of decarbonizing service would be really great for that because it's going to clean those valves up and we don't have to have that situation in the future. So that fuel system additives I really like. Just choose wisely. And I like transmission flushes. All right, Nick, sorry for going long on this one. Thanks for the question. Take care. All right, next up, we have a guy with uh, his his grandfather's oil stone that is no longer suitable for sharpening knives because it's no longer true on the surface. It's got edges higher than the center. He wants to true it up, and with that, uh, how can we do that? Patrick Roman will talk to us about that. Hey, guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. This week's question comes from Chris. He says, how do you edge dress an oil stone? I have my grandpa's old oil stone, but it's not as flat as it used to be. How do I get it flat again so that it gives me a good edge? Thanks for your question, Chris. Um, oil stones are a little bit different than water stones when it comes to flattening. Um, they're a little harder to flatten and take a little more time. I would suggest using a really coarse diamond stone to flatten it, or you could use a piece of glass with um, some valve lapping compound. With uh, getting anything flat, I've got some videos, I believe, on YouTube where you can watch, but you want to take some sort of pencil or marker and create a grid on the stone and make marks, you know, going either way and crisscross them and cover the whole stone with some marks. And then when you go to lap it, you're looking for all those marks to disappear. And it'll, you'll be pretty obvious to see where your high spots are, where your low spots are. Typically, the ends of the stone are going to be your high spot. They tend to dish out in the middle. So Anyways, just uh, give that a shot. Let me know how it works for you. Um, I haven't done a whole lot with oil stones because I just frankly don't care for them as much as I do the water stones. Water stones are a lot easier to flatten. Of course, with the caveat, they're going to uh, need flattening more often. So I have tried using some different older oil stones, and they don't cut they don't cut as quickly or as efficiently as a water stone. And so I pretty well shied away from them. But um, oil stones have been used for a very long time. I know a lot of people that like them. 
and you know they are going to be you know once you get it flat they are going to stay flat longer so give those a try and let me know how it works for you the other option you could do is a, a piece of glass maybe some 80 grit wet dry um, sandpaper i think what you're going to find though is it's going to it's going to cut real good for a little bit and then it's you know it's not going to cut through that oil stone very efficiently, very quickly. You'll probably end up going through quite a bit of sandpaper trying to get it flat. So anyways, this has been Patrick with MT Knives. Thanks for the question. If you guys have questions, feel free to send them in and I'll do my best to answer them. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. And now from the wilds of northern Montana, I should say northwestern Montana, Paul Wheaton, uh, on building doors and latches from all natural materials. This is some pretty cool stuff, guys. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. I'm here with... Kyle. Hey, TSB. <laughs> and we're going to uh, talk today about doors, uh, specifically door latching stuff or door things. Uh -huh. And uh, we're going to start off with talking about the door latching design that we've come up with for uh, Willow Bank, the Shower Shack, Willow Wonka, and a few others. Right. And uh, basically, the doors that are on there now are like version 7. And uh, glad I wasn't here for the other six. That's so nice to experience <laughs> number seven. Well, um, you experience number seven, yeah. but as much as you are the door master, uh. <laughs> um, uh, this was this was not your creation. Nope. Um, but you approve of this design. Yes. So yeah. it's you know, how do you make a door out of the natural materials we have here, and not have it you know cause problems or, or stick or come unlatched or not latched when you want it to. And so most of our doors that we're talking about at the moment uh, come from our, you know, the wood started with our sawmill. Mm -hmm. So we milled the wood. And then some of it is the rounder stuff that kind of comes off at the end, you know, like mill ends. Yep. And um, so, but for the most part, it's like one by fours. Yep. And we're making doors out of one by fours. Um, but, we're t but for the latch specifically, yeah. I would say... The one thing that I really love about these doors is the magnets. Right. So we've we've introduced I don't I guess you could say uh, cabinet magnets yeah. maybe, but whatever it is, we've introduced magnets into the doors. So how do you make a door for a bathroom specifically is what we're making them for that doesn't have a handle on the outside that operates the latch because you don't want people operating the latch when people inside want to stay inside and not be bothered. <laughs> um, so the magnets help you just have a handle on the outside to pull it open and close it. Um, and the latch operation is actually on the inside and the magnets keep it closed when it's not locked. Right. And the other thing is, is that there's an occupied message. Right. The, the indicator that you can see the, the bar for the latch has, you know, a little sign or something. There's different ones in each one. Um, to let people know when they walk up, hey, you know, don't try and yank on this door. Occupied. Yeah, it says occupied like or it says vacant. Yeah. But um, the the great thing is is that there's a latch and there's a latch. Uh -huh. And so the first latch is the magnet. So if the, the doors just have a, a a magnet clasp, and so if you close the door, the magnets grab the door and hold the door. I think have closed. like three magnets on each each door, so that yeah. it's pretty secure. And then um, then if somebody goes inside, 
there's a one by four that's mounted horizontally, uh-huh. and it's you can just... It's a captured bar that you slide over, and like, like a regular bathroom... Like if you're bathroom stall latch, but it's you know yeah, four yeah. inches wide. Like you're at the department store uh-huh. and you need to go into that little office they have back there. Yeah, it's just a, a bar you slide over and it locks into the door frame. Right, ours is just a one by four, uh-huh. but it's got like some stuff to kind of you know make it a little bit more substantial and okay. more su- significant. But when you slide it over, the message outside changes from vacant to occupied. Right. So um, the person inside can 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 use this latch to latch the door so that way somebody outside can't just waltz in when you're needing a little privacy. In the meantime, if there's nobody inside, the magnets hold it closed. And so um, that's been working effectively. One of the earlier designs, like the doors would be flapping around in the wind. But this is like if somebody left a door open in that way and the wind caught it and it flapped, the moment it comes in range of those magnets, the magnets grab it and it holds it closed. So this has been like Great. And then yeah. somebody took the one at Willow Bank. Oh, so it has a second indicator. Uh, the latch <laughs> bar has a a string to a pulley that goes up to a flag that when you operate the latch, it deploys and like unfurls this little blue flag that helps people say, okay, you know, I can see from 30, 40 feet away, this is occupied. And I'll give them their, their space until they come out. So that was created by Katie at uh, an event that we had, I think, two years ago. Nice job, Katie. Yeah, very and, smart. And uh, I think it's I think it's been enhanced a little bit since then. But pretty much, it's like if you're needing to head over there to Willow Bank because you need to make a deposit, uh-huh. um, and you could look out um, and be like, I don't know, a couple hundred feet away, and say, I don't have to walk all the way over there. I can see that I'm not gonna, you know, it's, it's not gonna be a successful trip. I can go somewhere else. Clearly, it's occupied at the moment. All right. Next thing is uh, we made a new door for the yes, uh, the for new the greenhouse. greenhouse. We got uh, this uh, truly passive greenhouse. I was tasked making a wooden door that was like it was seven inches thick and like weighed two hundred pounds or so, um, and I wanted to make the whole latching mechanism out of wood. So I made a automatic latching bolt with a, a wooden shaft and doorknobs. And uh, it's been very interesting. If you want more inf- information, it's it'll be on the on Permies. But um, and in the upcoming greenhouse movie, yes, in the movie, yeah. uh, he's got a video of it. Um, so the, the spring basically the awesome is... part of the latch is that it's operated with um, wooden springs that are like little miniature bow limbs made out of black locust. When we say bow, we mean like bow and arrow bow. Yes. Yeah. Um, so they're they're. If where the handle would be is where they attach to the bolt on like the top and bottom, and it pushes the bolt like an arrow, but there, the whole mechanism is captured in the structure of the door, so you operate like a little gear with the doorknobs, and it you know slides back and forth with the bow arms, putting uh, little action weights on either on either side of them. And this came from the fact that you're a bow maker. I have dabbled in bow making. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So now now we have a doorknob that works. And then the last one is, <clears throat> I just want to make a quick mention of the door the in, of doors. in Allerton Abbey. And I kind of feel like the beauty of the front door in Allerton Abbey isn't, because it's not painted, uh-huh. it's not shaped in anything. I mean, it's a big rectangle. It's a very thick door. Yep. It's an incredibly heavy door. And I think yeah. that there is an aesthetic 
that comes like when you grab the handle and you move the door, the aesthetic is what you feel in your arm. Yeah. Moving such a massive door. It it moves fairly smoothly, but you have to put a lot of inertia into it to, you know, feel it, you know, and get it get it going. Um, and it it's kind of like you're cracking into a new space, and uh, it's it's a feel. It's not so much of a visual thing. All other doors end up feeling cheap and flimsy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you you fling your front door closed, and you're like, oh wait, no, that's like. 30 pound door. I can't do that with this one. <laughs> yeah. You got to fling it and it's still there. Like, no. what? <laughs> what, do you, what do you want me to do? I didn't get it. <laughs> so, all right, Jack, that's it for now. Thanks. Bye. So, honestly, um, I needed at least one more segment today from an expert council member. I, I'm going to have to shake the piker tree for next week. I can tell already. Um, got some people. I, I got some people. I, I need to have a, a, a call out right now. For the foremost non-pikers on the list, I'm not saying everybody's a piker and not everybody's not enough, but I'll tell you, I got four people on the expert council need a little bit of recognition right now. And I'm going to say something nice about Paul, too, but he's not on the list um, as being non-pikers. Doc Bones and Ken Berry, right now I have a backlog of their content, probably through the end of the year for both of them, because I sent them a question, it comes back fast. Doc, Doc, it comes back really quick, Doc Bones. Ken, I sent him like one, and I'm like, I wonder if he's still doing these. I'll send him like 10, and then after he gets about 10, uh, in one day I'll get response, response, response. I'll get them all, and I'll get a huge amount, and I'm good for months then with him. So that, th- those two guys are great. And and two of our newer uh, folks, uh, Derek Bonpietro uh, and Toolman Tim Cook, man, those, those four, I mean – I know if it goes to them, it's either coming back or it's coming back with, I can't do this, get somebody else right away. And I just want to say I appreciate them. On Paul, I want to say having been in the situation, like I need one more. I saw the subject of this when it came back. Because Paul pretty much just picks a subject, does something, and sends me something you know, once or twice a month. And I was like, eh, it's probably a meh, but at least I have it. And Paul's always at least good in delivery. That was awesome. And it was some stuff I was like, you know, I, I, I never really thought about that. So big kudos to Paul. I'm going to reach out to him uh, individually and thank him for that segment. That that really was like, yeah, this will probably work. And it was like, oh, this is great. Anyway, let's talk about the quote of the day for, uh, for wrapping up with today. Um, Benjamin Franklin once said, you may delay, but time will not. Jack Spirico says, make the most of your dash. They're really the same thing. When I saw this quote today pop up, and, and I have a feed where I monitor quotes off of, like, Brainy Quote, and uh, uh, what's the other one that I, I look at all the time? Quote Fancy and a few, uh, Quotes AZ, a few others that I have, like, a, a feed that I put together, like, brings in their quote of the day and stuff. And I just kind of scroll through it and see, is there anything there? And then if there's not, I think of something to, to bring in with these quotes. But when I saw that one, I was like, boy, it's it's kind of perfectly timed. Because we're almost out of September. We're almost ready to wrap up uh, Q, Q3 and go into Q4 of the year. You know, 75% through the year. It's technically not till the end of next week, but I didn't want to wait on this one. I wanted to use it today. Because, you know, I've had to think about this a little bit recently with myself, with things like injuries, and then, like earlier this year, getting COVID and um, having injuries in the past, and how that takes it, robs time from you. 
and how we, you know, as we get older, we need to be a little bit like make sure we don't become too cautious to where we don't get things done anymore. We also need to be cautious so that we don't cost ourselves a week or a month or three months that never had to happen. In the case of this recent injury, I mean, I was walking. I don't know that that can be avoided, but, you know, some other things that have happened, maybe they could have, or even if they can't, like, how do you maximize still getting things done while they're going on? Because time will not delay. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the, the clock ticks for us all. And we all are born with a terminal illness called life. None of us are getting out alive. The survival rate for everybody over a long enough period drops to zero. Even if science, and I, you know, I'm listening to some futurists and things like that, that say we're on the cusp of this. Science coming up with technologies that will be able to use simple medications that we may be able to use that will dramatically prolong human life. So what? We go from having an average life expectancy of 70 to 120? 50 more years? If it can be quality years, I'll take it. I'll take it. You still ain't guaranteed that it's going to be you. Even if it becomes widely available. People die right now at 40, 35, 25. No guarantees. The average is not a guarantee. And being in better shape than most, and then having like, here's the average and here's what you should expect, still not a guarantee. It's likely, but it's not a guarantee. We can all get hit by a gravel truck. We all have this we all have this finite limit on what we get to do. And there's there's two ways to look at this. There's the selfish way, and I mean selfish in a good way, and there's the selfless way, and I mean selfless in a good way, because both of those concepts can be bad. And I, I keep thinking more and more, and I credit cryptocurrency with this to a great degree. I don't want to go deep into that subject right now, but the concept of having Hard money restored. All the greatness that man has built, truly built, happened in eras of hard money. In the last 50 years, we've built technology platforms. They're fleeting. They're fading. Some of the largest corporations in the world were gobbled up and disappeared in the last 20 years. Even though they, they went from zero to greatness, then they just disappeared. Even if they're still there, they're not relevant. How about AOL? How about AOL? Remember, you've got mail not that long ago. Pretty much destroyed by cable, internet, and DSL. Just gobbled up, became part of Time Warner. Is not even a useful website in reality today. It's there, but it's not useful. The only people who use it are really aging boomers that still have their email address there. Stop that. John Pugliano, no, I'm kidding. John Pugliano doesn't have an AOL email address, but he's the kind of guy I would expect to, right? Boomer, boomer-centric, right, on the AOL emails. Um, if you look at companies like what made Mark Cuban a multi-billionaire, Broadcast.com, he gets crap about that company. People are like, he sold a domain name. Just because Yahoo screwed it up didn't mean he didn't build something pretty amazing. But honest to God, you know what destroyed Broadcast.com? Podcasting. Podcasting. Broadcast.com had a business model. And they had these amazing technical people making it happen when no one knew how to make it happen. And they had rows and rows of guys in cubicles. These guys were happy. They were happy guys. They had good jobs. They phoned up constantly. 
every radio station that they could find that would talk to them. They constantly worked on them to bring them into the fold. And what they said is, what if when people leave Philadelphia and move to L.A. or Atlanta or Dallas, and they love your radio station, they could still listen to it. What if they could listen to it on their computer while they worked? And what if it didn't cost that much money? And, you know, radio stations at that time were like, wow, I mean, like, that must be impossible. No, we'll just basically put this card in one of our servers here, send some equipment to your office, have a local installer install it for you, and you'll be broadcasting on the Internet. We'll give you a little piece of code, put it on your website, listen live now, and people could do it. And this happened because Mark Cuban wanted to listen to things like Indiana Pacer basketball games here in Dallas. That's why it happened. You get into the world of podcasting, where a clown like me can throw up a a WordPress uh, website and start broadcasting anytime they want. You throw in things like live feed capabilities. You merge those two together where you can do both at the same time. And What do you need a broadcast.com for? That business had years in it. Not a lot, but it had a few years in it. Yahoo didn't destroy it and themselves. Yahoo still exists, but are they a competitor to Google? No, they're not. We know that. They're like fifth tier. They're like a freaking G-list celebrity. right? It's, 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 it's all been replaced. It's all been replaced. What lasts? How about the Notre Dame Cathedral that just caught on fire and may take a century to completely fix, but they're going to do it anyway? Because of how much there's already in it. But when was it built? It wasn't built with fiat currency. It was built at a time when society used gold as money. When people thought multi-generationally. That's when it was built. So when it comes to making the most of your dash, if there's these wonderful things you've wanted to do with your life, do them. If it's taking a trip somewhere, to Himalayas, I don't know, Plains Game Hunt in Africa, going out in the blue water and chasing blue marlin or something like that. Whatever it is, yeah, do those things too. If it's putting that garden in the backyard so you can live off your own garden for you know the last 20, 30, 40, 50, how many years of your life you have left, fine. But the other thing we should be investing this time in, this dash in, is things that will affect our great-grandchildren. I met one of my great-grandfathers once for a few minutes. He was very old. He was trached. He couldn't speak. He had had throat cancer. But he was happy. It's a fond memory that I have. I don't have a lot of fond memories from my family. But that's one of them. But I don't know his name. I don't know his name. There's nothing I have today, other than my life, that I can look back and say I have this because of him. There's nothing in my life that I have, really, that I've inherited. I have an old shotgun. I have one old shotgun. It was my grandfather's. It'll be my grandson someday. I have that. I have nothing else. We need to start thinking about leaving a legacy for our future. And that can be in hard assets, and that can just be in lessons. One thing I know that my grandchildren will have as they get older and they start to get wiser and they start thinking about who was grandpa really? Thousands and thousands of episodes of TSP. Archived forever, one way or another. They'll be able to know me. Their children will be able to know me. 
their grandchildren will be able to know me. Seven generations from now, they'll be able to know me and who I was and what I was about and what I left behind. And I'd like to leave some hard things as well, some things that they can touch. But we need to start thinking that way when it comes to making the most of our dash. Not just what we can do for ourselves. Not just what we can do for our kids or our grandkids. But what can we leave? Because as I've been saying a lot recently, and crypto is what has me thinking about this. When they stole our money, and that's what they did. They, make no mistake about it, they stole our money. When they demonetized gold and silver. When they no longer attached it to what we traded our time and our labor for. When they separated that, where it became two independent things. And it happened long before 1971 with Nixon. It, it really began in 1913 with the Federal Reserve. Because even though they were supposedly still backing by gold, there was already a decoupling. Then Roosevelt in 33 took the gold back and then changed the valuation of paper to gold, which was really revealing what had already happened, what had already been hidden by a new system. And from that point on, gold and paper continuously decoupled, but there was an illusion. And when the French decided, let's test this, and they started redeeming U.S. dollars for gold, that's, that's when Nixon closed the window. because Not because, hey, you know... We just don't like this because there was never going to be enough gold to cover. There was never going to be enough gold to cover the amount of money that had been printed. The French didn't attack us. The French revealed our lie. And then we just flipped it. Well, we don't need gold to back the dollar anymore anyway. And look at it now. And what you have to understand is this is what you're paid in. This is what your parents were paid in. This is what mostly your grandparents were paid in. This is what your children are paid in. This is what your grandchildren, if they're old enough to work, are being paid in now or will be paid in. This air money that comes from nothing. If you have a thing that you trade your labor, your time, your effort, your dash for, that in itself decays in time, That's what inflation is. It's the decay of the value of what you've worked for. Then there's only one way you're going to think. There's only one way you're going to think. Me, mine, now. And I don't mean like you're not going to feed your children. But eventually your kids are going to grow up. They're going to go have their own struggle, their own life. You ain't going to see them as much. Cats in the cradle will come. Your grandkids will come, and maybe if you're lucky and you live close like I do, you'll see them. But they're going to grow up. They're going to become teenagers. They're going to go live their life. They're not going to have time for you, especially when they're struggling 20-somethings. And you have that time to yourself. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to build with it? If you think in nothing but dollars, even if you're invested in stocks, bonds, etc., It's still, I'm trying to beat the system, but I'm in the system. I'm in the gerbil wheel, and by investing in these assets, the wheel turns a little bit easier for me. That just means you have to run faster, though, doesn't it? When we start looking at, and there's other things other than crypto, things like real property, we start looking at real estate, when we still start looking at true assets, 
we start looking at businesses that we build, all the things I talked about on Tuesday this week, we start to think about our children differently and our responsibility to leave a legacy differently. Instead of thinking like our parents or our grandparents, we start thinking like their parents and their grandparents. When people knew, if I put this away, if I don't spend this, it will go to my child or my grandchildren. Well, right now, if you just put it away, what will it be worth by the time your grandchildren have it? You have to risk it. You have to risk it. You know, one of my other quotes I did recently was from Richard Bach. I gave my life to become the person I am today. Was it worth it? That's true of every person whether they realize it or not. I wish somebody would have told me that when I was like 20. You already did this. You're going to keep doing it. It'll never stop. At any moment, at any time in your life, wherever you are, you're going to be able to say, you gave your life, every bit of it you had up to that point, to become what you are. And you need to ask yourself if it was worth it. I think one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways we know it's worth it is if we leave behind a legacy. We leave behind something for our kids, our grandchildren, their kids and their grandchildren, and their kids and their grandchildren. I, I keep threatening to do this. I need to bring around a shirt that says, bringing back seventh generational thinking, and the B is a Bitcoin, you know, coin B, an orange B. I, I really need to do that. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help us out just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, today's item of the day, I'm going to probably say it wrong. It's a Chinese, you know, chop shop company. It's Quinlymph. It's a five outlet, um, extender with four USB charging port, ports, uh, for, for your outlets. So what this is is a box you plug into a wall, just like the one I brought you a couple weeks ago. It's made a little bit differently. That one is the cable matters box. I love that one because I've used it for several years. I know it works. It's never failed on me, so it's got longevity testing in it. This one I like for the form factor, though. Instead of six uh, 110 outlets, it has five, but there's one in the front. It's located on the bottom, and it's located perfectly if you have that big honking you know, a, uh, DC adapter plug that's going to be in the way, and you have one of those getting plugged in. It doesn't block anything else. And then it's kind of got 45-degree angles sloping back on the side and two on each edge of it, and then above that one that's flat on the front, it has three USB ports and one USB-C port, and it's like 14 bucks. So I, I did a whole write-up on comparing the two so you can make a better choice between them for yourselves. Um, I give a pretty big disclaimer about what these types of devices as far as surge protection. Uh, I don't consider any of them really to be high-level surge protection, uh, but you can read the write-up. You want to check this thing out, and, you know, I think being able to do something this simple makes a lot of sense. There's one more thing that I really love about this one over the Cable Matters one. This one has a hole in the center and comes with a screw. And if you've ever looked at a wall, uh, a wall plate where you have your duplex outlet, your two 110s, there's a little screw right in the middle of the wall plate that holds a wall plate on the wall so you don't, like, stick your finger there and electrocute yourself. Well, it's pretty safe if you don't stick your finger into the hole where the wires are and cross-connect yourself um, and kill yourself, right? It's pretty safe to take that wall plate off. People change out wall plates all the time. So when you install this, you take that screw out, you pull the faceplate off the wall. You plug this thing in, and you put the screw that comes with it that's longer so it can handle the thickness of the box, and you screw it in the wall. This way, 
it stays put when you pull other plugs out and your kids ain't going to pull it off the wall. Right, so uh, definitely check this guy out. I think you guys will like it. Again, it's made by a company called Quinlinf, Q-U-I-N-L-I-A-N-F. I've only used it for about a week. It was one of those things. I, the marketing got me, right? Automated marketing. I was on Amazon buying some other shit. They had seen some stuff I was doing lately and said, ah, you might like this. And I looked at it and went, yeah, 14 bucks, hell yeah, I'll give that thing a try. Uh, but check it out and see if it works for you. But remember, no matter what you buy, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. As we wrap up the music for the week, song of the day today is Fire and Rain by James Taylor. And you got one less song this week. And because of that, I really helped you out in trying to guess what Jack's Pandora channel is based on for this week's music. When I was choosing today's song, there was quite a few songs that would have been made it trickier. I couldn't have made this easier. I'm not saying it's easy, but I couldn't have made it easier. The channel this week is based on a group, not an individual artist or a genre, a group, a group. The group, nor any member of this group, will be, will not be in any of the songs. So you know that since Seals and Croft were yesterday, neither Seals nor Croft were ever part of this group. The songs we have this week were Leader of the Band by Dan Fogelberg, Summer Breeze by Seals and Croft, and Fire and Rain Today by James Taylor. Can you name that group? Remember, there's no prize money or anything in it. It's just a little fun thing that we can do. Monday when I come back, well, Tuesday when I come back, right? Tuesday when I might have a rewind for you Monday. We'll see. Uh, but Tuesday when I come back, um, I will have another channel of songs for you. I don't know how long we're going to do this. For a while, it's fun. I have a lot of channels, so this makes picking the music interesting and easy. Um, and I will give you a link in Monday show notes that says, hey, Here's the channel, and I'll tell you who it is. And if you want my channel, you can grab it. Next week, I will say this. We'll do something a little bit more upbeat and a little closer to modern. Not all the way up to modern times. I'm old, but a little bit more modern as far as the artists and the time that the music came out. Uh, I don't know what, but something like that next week. But again, here we go. Uh, Fire and Rain, Summer Breeze, Leader in the Band. What group? Do you think this Pandora channel is based on? With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you. I walked out this morning and I wrote down this song. Just can't remember who to send it to I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you down upon me, Jesus You gotta help me make a stand You just got to see me through another day My body's aching and my time is at hand I won't make it any other way 
I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again Time, my back turned towards the sun. Lord knows when the cold wind blows, it'll turn your head around. Well, there's hours of time on the telephone line to talk about things to come. Sweet dreams and flying machines in pieces on the ground. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you, baby, one more time again. Thought I'd see you one more time again. There's just a few things coming my way this time around now.